Um, I actually borrowed this sermon from a, a church in North Carolina, but I loved it so much that I thought I would, I would borrow it from them. <laughs> um, but it's, a, a, it's actually a series on the life of Solomon. We're going to talk about the first part today. Um, you know, maybe, maybe another part in the future. But, but today, for sure, we'll talk about uh, the beginnings of the life of Solomon. Well, not the, begin- not the very beginnings, but some of it. Um, Solomon was a really interesting dude. We're going to be in the book of 1 Kings, if you've got your Bibles. Uh, 1 Kings, chapter 3, is where we're going to be. Um, now, I bet at some point in your life, uh, you've had to answer... Uh, you had to answer the question uh, of what you'd wish for if there was a genie in a lamp, right? I know I've done that in my own life, uh, and there's there's a couple of things, right? Uh, what would you wish for if you had found a genie uh, in a lamp? Now, of course, you know the rules. There's a couple of rules that you have to. We all agree to. Uh, you can't wish for more wishes, and you can't. Make somebody fall in love with you or anyone else. Those are the rules of the, of the genie, typically. So I started to think, like, if, um, if I were to ask my kids, I meant to ask them this morning, I forgot, but if I were to ask my kids, if they had a genie, what wishes they would wish for? Um, it's funny, the story, uh, the, the preacher that I borrowed this from tells a story about he was on a vacation with his family, and uh, they were touring um, this uh, national park. And their guide told them that if, while they were passing through this one part of the park, if they held their breath uh, through the whole way through this one part, at the end, they would get to make a wish. And so afterwards, he asked his kids what their wishes were. Uh, and he said, uh, you know what I would wish for? I wish that God would use me in his global mission." And he said he was so touched by that, by his uh, kid saying that. He asked his second kid uh, not to be one-upped by the spiritual competition. His daughter said, uh, I wish that God would let me become a NICU nurse helping kids in poor countries. I mean, come on. Does it get better than that? Um, but then he had his youngest kid say, I wish for a dog. <laughs> And I think, you know, if I were to ask my kids, I think I would have similar answers. I think Kelsey would have something maybe profound, or I would like to think that she would have something profound. Probably not. Oh, Misty's saying no. (laughs) Beckham would be like, what's a wish? And, um, you know, Buddy, who knows what he would say. I mean, let's just be honest. But I think it's so funny, right? Kids are just so different, um, and and it was so funny for me to see uh, kind of the answers that his kids, but what would you wish for? What would you think uh, if God came to you, like not comparing God to a genie, but if God came to you and told you that uh, you could ask him for one thing, anything at all, what would it be? What would it be? That's basically what God did with Solomon at the beginning of his reign as king. In First Kings chapter 3 and verse 5, we read this. At Gibeon, the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, ask, what should I give you? Now, before we dive into Solomon's answer, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Solomon. Solomon was David's son, like the David. 
in 1 Kings 3, he finds himself the newly appointed heir to the throne. Now, in one sense, Solomon was born into privilege. In another, he was the product of a pretty messed up family. <laughs> you see, he was the son of Bathsheba, the wife David stole from his best friend after he had him murdered. <laughs> so that relationship was a little complicated. Now, Solomon was not David's only son or even his oldest. Uh, so there was a lot of jealousy and infighting among the brothers about who was going to get to replace David as king. You see, Amnon, David's oldest, raped his half-sister, and so David's, one of David's other sons, Absalom, killed him for that. Then Absalom, who was clearly David's favorite, got impatient while David was still alive and led a revolt to overthrow David and got killed in the process. <laughs> Then, when David was on his deathbed, Abinijah, a third son, tried to claim the throne and attempts to marry David's favorite concubine to prove he was up to the job, and he ended up getting killed for that. <laughs> so, are you feeling better about your family yet? <laughs> you know, I, I think it's interesting to point all this stuff out because some of us come from messed up families. But the good news is, most of the people that God chose to use in the Bible did too. Isn't that interesting? God wants to start, oh, you know what? Your past family history doesn't have to define your future. I love this last little note here. Your past family history doesn't have to define your future. God wants to start a legacy of blessing in our families with us today. And we can become someone greatly used by God to bless others, just like Solomon was. Solomon shows us how to get there. So first, we're going to look at how Solomon responded to God's offer. In 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 6, it says this. Solomon replied, you have shown great... Uh, and, oh, that's tiny, isn't it? Uh, you have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David. You have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne, as it is today. Lord my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. Interesting answer. So first, in the passage, we should note both what he asks for and why he asks for it. First, he asks for wisdom. Probably the simplest definition of wisdom in this context would be to say that wisdom is the ability to see things from God's perspective. So let's look at the words that Solomon uses to request wisdom. In verse 9, he says, Give your servant a receptive heart. Literally, the word means hearing or perceiving heart. Give me the ability to perceive things like you perceive them. So the most common Hebrew word that Solomon uses for wisdom in Proverbs, which is in uh, a book he wrote on wisdom, means training or coming under authority. To be wise is to have your thoughts trained in a God-shaped view of the world so that you know what God wants even before you know what he says. 
It implies something like instinct. Which leads to the second word he uses, discern between good and evil. He's asking for the ability to discern the right paths from the wrong ones. Specifically, when the answer is not laid out clearly. When there's no road map for how he should decide, he asks for the ability to discern which is right and which is wrong. When the Bible is clear on something, it's easy. Right? But a lot of life's big decisions are not spelled out clearly in Scripture. Like whom to marry, or what job to take, or which financial choices are the best, or the best way to handle certain relational conflicts. Wisdom is knowing what to do in those situations where it's not clearly spelled out. There's a quote by Tim Keller who says this, Wisdom is knowing how to navigate the realities of life when the rules don't help. (laughs) And so there are some illustrations of this in Proverbs. In Proverbs 26.4 it says, It tells us that it's disastrous to try to answer a fool when they are saying foolish things. (laughs) I mean, how, how much more right does it get? Proverbs 26.5, the verse right after it, tells you that it's disastrous not to answer a fool. So which is it? <laughs> we need something more than just a rule to help in the moment. We need wisdom to know if you are a Proverbs 26.4 or a 26.5 situation. <laughs> Another example is the story right after this one in 1 Kings 3. It's included to show you the mind of wisdom God gave. It's the one uh, of the most famous stories in the New Testament. Oh, I'm sorry, the Old Testament. Uh, two women come in with a baby. Uh, and what's the right thing to do with that st- in that situation? Uh, so Solomon said, go bring me a sword. We remember the story. Two women come in with a baby, each claiming to be the mother. Uh, they both tell compelling stories. And Solomon says, okay, the right thing to do in this moment is split the baby in half. Get me a sword. We'll split it in half. And, of course, we saw one woman say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which I can't imagine uh, anybody, anybody saying that. That's just crazy talk to me. But then, of course, the other woman said, no, 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 she can have it. And with Solomon's sort of crass uh, navigating of that situation was able to discern who the real mother was. It was the mother who was willing to give up her own child so that it wasn't killed. Now, if you or somebody you know is a part of our legal system, I don't know that this is exactly the right thing for us to maybe take on as a new practice um, when somebody brings you a case. (laughs) probably shouldn't be grabbing swords in today's modern court system. Um, It probably wouldn't go over well. Um, But Solomon asked God to give them the ability to know what God wants, even when it's not clear. By the way, before we move on to why Solomon asked for this um, up here at the top, uh, let me point out that Solomon's posture in his prayer was the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve had done in the Garden of Eden. They had stolen fruit from the forbidden tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which promised them the ability to determine for themselves what was right and wrong for them. Solomon's request goes 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And he says, I want to perceive what you want, God. And when it's not clear, let your spirit give me wisdom. Completely the opposite from what Adam and Eve did. 
So that's what he asked for. But just as important is why he asks for it. In verse 9 we see, So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? You see, he's not asking for his sake, for himself, so he can write books on, and make shrewd financial decisions and make lots of money, but for the people's sake, and ultimately God's sake, because the people belong to God. In fact, I think there's three ingredients to Solomon's prayer that should serve as a template for our prayers. The first thing is that Solomon prays understanding that he is little. You see, Solomon recognizes that he doesn't have wisdom. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Lord, my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth. Some translations even say like a little child with no experience or leadership. This is so smart for him to do because God promises never to turn away from the humble who cry for him uh, to help. If we could learn this, if it would change our lives because it goes contrary to everything else society teaches us. You know, right now there's a couple of verses that, uh, that come to mind. Um, Psalm 146.5 says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Psalm 55.22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. And Psalm 28.6 says, Blessed is the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield because my heart trusted him. I was helped. You see, God never turns away those who look to him for help. And he gives wisdom to Solomon because he confesses he doesn't have it. The irony is is that the smarter and more naturally savvy we are, the more likely we are to miss out on the wisdom of God. Kevin DeYoung says, If you think you're really smart, you're on the path to becoming a fool. But if you feel that you don't have it all together, you've begun down the path to becoming wise. There's almost nothing more malleable in God's hand than a humble, teachable spirit. And there's nothing with which God will do less than a proud, arrogant heart. James says it this way, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. In chapter 4, verse 6. He doesn't just ignore us, he resists us. Which means not only does he withhold his wisdom from us, He frustrates our plans. Isn't that interesting? So blessed are we when we have empty hands because they will be filled with God's strength. The second thing that we can learn from this, the second ingredient, is that Solomon prays recognizing that God's purposes are paramount. As we pointed out earlier, he asks for wisdom for the sake of his great people. He asks for a big thing. But God rewarded it because it was kingdom-focused. What do we dream about? Why do we dr- and why do we dream about it? There's nothing wrong with asking for greatness, but we, do, we should do it for the sake of God's great name and not our own. <laughs> it says, I've, I, you know, we've lamented, um, you know, most Christian prayers we hear prayed in public. Um, 
the term that I like to use is Christianese. I think we just sometimes fill our prayers with Christianese. Maybe to a fault. Sometimes we try to fill them up with cliches and platitudes that don't make any sense. Uh, and I know you're going to use these to judge people in, in uh, maybe small groups later or church later. Or maybe if you see this, see this happening in groups around you. Don't do that. You know, we can't. <laughs> it's not, not up for, uh, to us to judge. But I think a lot of times in, in church, we use these Christianese phrases like, Lord, just be with us. I know I'm guilty of this. Lord, just be with us. And God says, I promised you I will never leave or forsake you. Uh, if we just read the scripture and we stopped asking, <laughs> I love this quote. He puts us in like a God quote. I promised you I will never leave you or forsake you, so read your Bible and stop asking me for things I already promised I would do. <laughs> well, phrases like, this is my favorite, because I use, oh man, I use this like probably every lunchtime prayer. Lord, bless this food for the nourishment of our bodies. <laughs> But, you know, we can thank him for it, but we don't need to really ask him to bless it. God did that in Genesis 1 when he called it good. <laughs> Food is already pre-blessed. Uh, and, well, I mean at least certain kinds. But if you're eating a double Whopper with onion straws and washing it down with a 64-ounce Coke, I don't think a prayer is going to change anything. <laughs> Lord, you turn water into wine. Transubstantiate this cheeseburger into broccoli and this Coke into a veggie shake, and I'll eat it. <laughs> You know, our, our prayers are filled with endless banal retention, re- repetitions. Oh, God, we just thank you, God, just for your presence, God. I mean, I do it all the time. I know it. I do it. Imagine if we talk to our spouse that way, the, that, that some people pray. Uh, babe, could you just pick up some milk, babe, uh, while you're at the store? Yeah, just go ahead, babe, and just go to the milk section, babe. Uh, just grab a gallon of milk and just place it right in your cart, babe. <laughs> She just literally shot her, fake shot her husband. <laughs> I don't know if anybody caught that. <laughs> babe, just thanks, babe. Just, just thanks. So that's the first problem. Nothing theolo- theologically wrong with it. It just, you know, sounds weird. The second problem that we sometimes have is our prayers are so incredibly me-focused. The gimme, gimme, gimme attitude. Uh, like we're going through a laundry list of items we need God to pick up for us at the Divine Supermarket. God, give me this, give me that, make him behave this way, smite her for saying that about me. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You know, prayer is the means God gives us for seeing his will done on earth. It's a weapon of spiritual warfare, not a heavenly dumbwaiter, which means we have to spend most of our time praying for the advance of God's purposes on earth. Is this what the thrust of our prayers are about? If God answered all the prayers you prayed last week at 12.01, how many people would be in the kingdom? Listen, there's nothing wrong with great and grand, audacious prayers. We should be praying more of them. We shouldn't be shy in our prayers. Thou art coming to a king. But what or whom are we ultimately praying them for? This passage has been a big one uh, as I was doing this study, personally, why, I'm pr- why am I praying? Uh, who am I praying to for my kids? A- am I praying to validate me as a dad so that, that maybe they'll live close to me all their lives and make me proud? Or is it for the purposes of God's kingdom? God, raise my kids up and send them out for your purposes. Or as a, a pastor, a youth minister, 
Am I praying for the greatness of the church to reach out to a lot of people so that we can change the climate of our community spiritually? To reach generations of high school and college students to see families around us raise up a godly generation of students. To have our church be a miracle of racial and other types of diversity. To make monumental differences in the countries around the world. Why, why do we pray these things? I mean, it's a familiar story to us that God confronted on some non-Solomonic motives. So Solomon recognized that God's purposes were paramount, that it wasn't just about him. And I think the third ingredient that we need to recognize is that Solomon prays, believing that God will do what he said. Believing God would do what he said. Solomon really believed that God would give this to him. And this, I think, is really important. Notice what Solomon grounds his confidence in. In verse 6, he says, Solomon replied, You have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David. You have continued this great and faithful love by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. Do you see what he did? He reviews the past activity of God and repeats back to God a promise that God had already made. God, you promised my dad that his kingdom would prosper and that he would never lack a descendant to sit on his throne. And here I am. Honestly, if I were Solomon and I were trying to establish a basis for why God should answer this prayer, I would have started with, well, God, just a second ago, uh, you said I could have anything. So pinky swear, no take backs. (laughs) But Solomon recognizes that there's an even stronger claim than that. It's what God promised is his word. You see, when God makes a promise, he can't break it. Because that would make him a liar. So that's the good news, you see, because that's a promise we can share. You may never have had a dream where God appears to you and says, asks me anything like he did with Solomon. I know I haven't. But we all have the promises made to Jesus, David's ultimate son, and we can ask in his name. God, you promised Jesus that you would build him this kind of people on earth. Do it in my family. Honestly, when I read passages like this, we, it's, it's a moment to get fired up. Take a look at these. Psalm 2 and verse 8. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. James 1.5, we read it earlier. If any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to, to all without finding fault and will be given to you. 1 John 5 and 14, with this confidence, man, tr- uh, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. In Matthew 21, 22, whatever things you ask in prayer, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Man, those are some good promises. You say, you know what, I thought maybe, um, this is kind of funny. (laughs) That sounds real prosperity gospel-like. Just believe and you'll have it, brother. Just give us a seed. But you know what, I do believe in a prosperity, the prosperity of God's kingdom and not our own. And these promises speak to that. You know, I read these promises and I think, God, if you did it for your people in the past, well, can't you do it for me? 
You did it in their generation. Why not do it for mine? Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so do it in my generation, what you did in theirs. You know, I think we make a big mistake when we think God's greatest, greatest works are a thing of the past. They're not. He wants to work today. He wants to work in your family, in our church. Could it be that we were placed here at this exact moment, in this exact place, to ask God for something great? I think this generation of believers is responsible for this generation's souls all over the world, and we need to move in our own generation. What's the next slide? What's up there next? Nothing? Oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> so Solomon was guided by three principles. Asked God, guided by those three principles, he asked God for wisdom. Now, we may read this and think it was a one-time occurrence and say, well, if God ever appears to me in a dream like this, I'll know what to do. <laughs> well, first, we have to remember that Jesus is the greater Solomon, and through his spirit in us, we can ha be even wiser than Solomon. A second thing to think about is the promise of the story is repeated for us in the New Testament. James 1.5, again, says, If any of us lack wisdom, we should ask God, who gives to all. Ooh, excuse me, all generously. Some versions will say ungrudgingly, without finding fault, and it will be given to him. In this verse, we see God's impartiality in bestowing wisdom. He should ask God who gives to all, all, us, you, me. God's individuality in bestowing wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, He's saying if the human race lacks wisdom, but if you, in a situation, you are in uniquely lack wisdom, just ask God. And thirdly, we see God's indulgence in bestowing wisdom. Who gives to all generously, without finding fault, some translations say, without reproach. Now that means without lecture. It means that when I pray to God, uh, it means when I pray, God is not up in heaven shaking his head, turning to Jesus and saying, can you believe this guy? He's got himself into another situation, being an idiot. Just like he usually is. Uh, why does he think I'd help him? I'd give him a piece of my mind. Do you, do you ever have that friend you go to advice for, uh, and instead of offering you advice, they give you a lecture uh, on... on in, uh, on how stupid you were for getting yourself in that situation. Maybe you had a parent that was like that. I know I didn't have parents that were like that, ever. This is being recorded. My parents were never like that. <laughs> oh, you just, oh, okay. Well, I've been outed. <laughs> I know, um, you know what's so funny is the longer I thought about this, the, that question, the, the more I realized that I'm that friend. <laughs> I'm the one that gives the lecture. <laughs> I was really convicted by it. But you know what? God never does that. He responds to our cry for help immediately. Now, some of us may feel like we can't go to God because we've messed up in life so bad that we think surely we need to do some cleanup and repair before we ask God for help. But the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus took the full punishment for our sin. 
We don't have to suffer or endure a lecture to make up for what we did. All that was poured out on Jesus. So now, the moment you call, God has nothing for you but help. When it comes to our relationship with God, repentance doesn't start on a path home. It places you fully at home immediately. Cleaning up the effects of your sin may take time, but restoration with God, getting on your, God on your side, working to help you repair the situation, that happens immediately when we humble ourselves and we call on Him. Now, there's a couple of qualifications that James gives us. A couple of things that we have to uh, do while we're asking God for help so we don't short-circuit the development of wisdom. Ah, fine print. I knew it, right? No, no, no. They're obvious. The first thing he says is don't doubt. In verse 6 it says, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like a surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Be confident that God will do what he said. If we don't believe he'll do it, he won't help. Don't defy. In verse 7 it says, don't be double-minded. That means that we're not sure if you'll obey him. Let me hear your option, God, and I'll consider whether I want to do it. (laughs) In order for God to hear our prayer, we have to be pre-surrendered. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The third thing is we don't disregard. Doubt, defy, and disregard. That's a lot of alliteration, I know. But between the last, between uh, thinking about that, I think we can really read into uh, this, this message. Don't disregard. Uh, means God has given you for wisdom. Uh, Don't disregard the means God has given you for wisdom. The chief of those, of course, is his word. A really great verse to think about in this situation is Psalm 119 and 9. How can a young man keep his way pure or remain wise by taking heed your word? You see, we grow in wisdom as we grow in our knowledge of Scripture. Some other means that God has given us to attain wisdom is the church, which is why we're always pushing to get as connected as possible. Because there's wisdom, uh, specifically listening to the counsel of others. Now the point is that God promises to answer when we pray, but part of praying in faith... Oh my goodness... Part of praying in faith is availing yourself of the means God has given you to obtain wisdom. I think we've heard stories like this. There's a guy hanging on a branch, and he prays to God, save me! And another hiker comes along and drops a rope. No, no, I've prayed to God and believe he'll send a miracle. The branch breaks, the guy dies. And when he gets to heaven, he says, hey man, what was up with that? Why didn't you answer my prayer? God said, uh, God said, I did. <laughs> I sent a guy with a rope. <laughs> and we say, that's dumb. Everyone would recognize that that was the answer to your prayer. But we ask God for wisdom and cut ourselves off from its prescribed means of gaining wisdom, the church and scripture. It's insincere for us to ask God for wisdom and then cut ourselves off by the means from which 
we can make those decisions. Now, some of us may need wisdom, but we neglect the God-given means that he's given us to obtain it. We neglect relationships with the church, and some of us are even avoiding them because we don't like what other believers may have to say. Let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. That's tough. But let's look, at, let's look at another passage where Solomon applies this to the question of guidance in our lives and probably his most famous writing of all time in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. I love this promise. It has everything we need in it for guidance. It shows us that we have a part, that he has a part. My part is to trust in his willingness to lead me, to don't doubt, and rely on my ability to figure it out. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Do everything you believe he is telling you to do. Don't doubt, defy, or disregard. And then the comma, the best comma in the Bible, I think. His part is to make straight my paths. Most of my worry, I think, comes from doubting whether he will keep us uh, on his part. God, uh, get back in your part of the sentence. Uh, this is an interesting prayer that maybe we could adopt in decisions. Uh, it's, he calls it a sheep prayer. And it goes something like this. God, in your word, you've told me that I'm a sheep. Sheep are idiots. <laughs> If you know anything about sheep, that's really true. Sheep are not that bright. <laughs> if I'm a sheep, I don't have the ability to figure out what I should do. But if you're the great shepherd and I trust in your ability to guide me, so give me wisdom to know what to do in this situation. And if I'm too dumb to recognize it, guide me in the background. I'm going to do everything I know you want me to do and trust you're making my path straight. Then I make the decision I know how to make and trust that God has answered my prayer and I don't stress. Sheep are idiots. <laughs> I've done what he told me to do. I trust he'll do what he promised he would do. I trusted and didn't rely. I leaned on him. I think it's such a liberating way to live. I'm not sure if we realize just how large a burden this would take off of most of us if we just believed it, if we grabbed onto that. As we kind of come down to a close, maybe we start thinking about a couple of other questions. What happened? Did God answer Solomon's prayer? Yeah. Yeah, he really did. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, Because you have requested this and did not ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but you asked discernment for yourself to administer justice, I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I, gi I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no king will be e your equal during your entire life. So God says, yeah, I'll, gi I'll give you wisdom. But on top of that, I'm going to give you everything you didn't ask for. Because Solomon prioritized God in his kingdom. God threw in all of these other things as a bonus. I want you to be careful because I don't want to imply that when we pray 
this prayer, uh, next week you'll win the lottery. God, just give me a humble and wise heart, and I know I'll win the lottery. But it does show us something about the character of God, something Scripture attests to again and again. If we seek first God's kingdom for God's kingdom's sake, he throws in so much joy. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What are all these things? Provision, abundance, and joy. These God supplies for us when we seek him above everything. In Scripture, when we search for Jesus, we find happiness and peace in our relationships, contentment in our possessions. We start, we start out searching for those things, whether it's through lots of money, contentment in life, great marriage, great physical relationships, happy families. But even in all of those things, we won't find true contentment. It's not until we seek Jesus in His will that we'll find not only Him, but we will fill, He will fill our life with so much joy and satisfaction and abundance that we won't know how to contain it all. There's a great quote from C.S. Lewis that says, In life, there are first-order things and second-order things. The first-order things is God and His kingdom. So how do we become as wise as Solomon? It's by following the example that he left because of the wisdom that he received. That in everything that we do, in every decision that we try to make, in everything that we think God is leading us to, we ask and seek God's will first, above it all. If we do it because we do it for us, it'll never work. But if we do it because we think it's God's will, because we feel that God is leading us to that because it will advance His kingdom. If every decision we make is focused on what God can do in it, then God will overabundantly give us satisfaction Enjoy. Father, you've given us this example through the life of Solomon. The idea that we should ask for wisdom in everything that we do because decisions are sometimes difficult. We don't always have the rules and we don't always have uh, exactly what it is that you want for our lives spelled out for us in a clear way. And so, God, in those moments, we ask that you would give us the type of wisdom that you bestowed on Solomon. Because like you said in Scripture, if we come to you with a humble heart and we ask earnestly through that prayer, that you would give us more than we could ever imagine. God, may we ask for wisdom to do your will. 
I want to do more than anything, more than money, more than a career, raising up good kids or good health. God, we want to make you great as a parent, as an employee, as a leader, as a Christian. We want to make our church great. For the sake of our community, for the sake of your kingdom, and where you've given us reach, and to the nations around the world that we can impact from our small place. God, are we asking for the things that you most want and not what we want? God, guide us in this. If we don't know how to make the decision, push us with your spirit to the right path. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this. We ask this earnestly in Jesus' name. Amen.